Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. You can probably guess what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, apologies in advance if the energy levels are a bit low on my behalf. I'm uh, working on not very much sleep and a flight home straight from St. Pete to the UK. So uh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit up against it. JR, how are you doing? Are you, are you ready to cut a little bit of my slack and bring a bit more excitement to the pod than usual? I'm well rested, Jack. Okay. <laughs> so we're all set. You can you can laugh about being well rested for for the next like two or three weeks, and then you're just not going to sleep. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to sleep for a year. A year, like eighteen <laughs> years, probably. By the sounds of it, JR's expecting a baby. If you're new to the pod, <laughs> well, JR, I think I'm going to make you a bit jealous, but I have to tell you about something I did over the weekend, um, which was very enjoyable. Okay, let's hear it. I got a ride in the Honda CRV Beast with James Hinchcliffe. Ooh, nice! At the on the tr- on track. Yeah, we did two laps of the St. Pete Street Circuit in the IndyCar engined Honda CRV, which ticks a lot of your boxes, really, Jr. It's uh, well, it's slammed. It's an SUV that sh- like looks like it shouldn't be a race car, but actually looks like a great race car right. when you add a load of what looks like PVC gutter into it to make it look like it's from Group Group B rally in, in the 1980s. Uh, it's got a wicked rear spoiler that makes it look a bit like the Pikes Peak Suzuki Escudo. And yeah, it's got a lot of tech that IndyCar are going to use in, in 2024 with the, with the hybrid and the current IndyCar engine. And I'm still a bit deaf, to be honest, but it was good fun. It was nice to see Hinch's uh, red gloves up close and personal. And... <laughs> Glad he's getting he's getting to exercise him a little. Yeah, well, he's you could argue like he's ferrying around some pretty high profile VIPs with you know Jack Benny in the passenger seat. So <laughs> fair play to him. Yeah, he say he's he saved he saved a squirrel at one point. Um, I wasn't sure if it was a natural uh, breaking point for the corner or whether he actually uh, <laughs> see the squirrel coming and like literally break to save the squirrel, but the. The uh, the diffuser and all of the like turning vanes on the front and stuff would have would have made quite quite quick work of a squirrel, especially. I was gonna like, say, yeah, would have been um, bad news for that squirrel for sure. With like eight hundred brake horsepower, but yeah, I definitely recommend going to to have a look at that on Honda's uh, social media channels. It's uh, it's it's running on road tires at the minute, and they're still. Um, I'd, I'd say that well, that's basically the first time they've had it out on track properly, so they're still definitely optimizing a lot of the the kind of. I think they call it like the the role in laboratory. So they're changing stuff on it all the time and uh, mixing things up in it. But yeah, it was wicked. Um, I tell you what did surprise me, JR, and I have a new a new sense of sympathy for you guys was we rolled out actually on the hybrid. So it was pretty quiet, just like rolling out onto the track. So we rolled out just before turn three and then mm-hmm. 
like halfway through turn three, Hinch pressed a couple of buttons and then the IndyCar engine started. And I was like, whoa, I've got, uh, I've got some, I've got some earplugs in, but I don't think anything really prepares you. Even if you've sat in like competition vehicles before for like the sound of something like an IndyCar engine for the first time, if it's something that you're not used to and haven't really expected. So that totally. I'm sure, especially like that, just, I mean, it's kind of, I'm sure it's kind of a violent fire up. Yeah. You know, like you listen to the the GTP, you know, whatever the LMDH cars do yeah. their thing. And it's kind of like, yeah. like it's just fucking sorry, it's like really sudden. <laughs> it's like a it's like a bump start basically, <laughs> but with an eight hundred brake horsepower yeah. engine. So <laughs> anyway, enough of my uh, boasting about my great passenger rides over the weekend. We should definitely get into the race at St. Pete. Um, I, I guess we should definitely start with mentioning Marcus Ericsson as a race winner. Roman Grosjean scoring his second IndyCar pole position as well. So those are two things we're definitely going to get onto on the podcast this week, alongside our usual analysis style of all the other major stories that kind of went down. Um, I guess, Joe, I wanted to start with what I kind of define as the key element of this race, which was the Roman Grosjean-Scott McLaughlin incident, um, crash, whatever you want to call it. I guess for me, either of those two guys were going to win the race at that point. You know, Roman had dominated from the start. He'd kept his tyres alive a lot longer than his his Andretti teammates. He was controlling the race from the front for the most part. A lot of cautions kind of jumping in and, and mixing things up. But um, yeah, just a bit of strategy that got Scott McLaughlin ahead. And obviously he came out of the pits and had a little uh, dice with Roman Grosjean. They both ended in the wall in uh, turn four. I think the only thing before I throw to you, Joe, I wanted to kind of address was we we have history of Roman, don't we? We have people who have discussed how he races at, at length. And I did see a few tweets, kind of mostly people who I would probably say were Formula One fans saying, you know, it's not really fair how people are, are racing Roman in, in IndyCar and, and stuff like that. And I thought I'd quite like to quickly address that and clear it up because I don't think any part of that incident was Scott McLaughlin disrespecting Roman Grosjean in, in any way, shape or form. If anything... His reaction to the incident afterwards, and sort of how many apologies he gave, and and how hard he was beating himself up in his his post race interview shows how much he was trying not to do that, and and was trying to give Roman the the space. Um, I don't know how you saw this one, Jr. For me, it was the, the the kind of defining part of this incident is is Scott locking the rears, and that's what you know bumped Roman into into the tires. Up until that point there was maybe an argument that Roman wasn't going to make the corner because it was obviously a pretty optimistic move around the outside. We hadn't seen anyone go around the outside of that corner all race and Roman had fired it in. And maybe it's unfair of me to say, but I think up until the point of contact there, I was thinking, is Roman going to really be able to make that stick? Is he going to be able to to get around there? And then obviously Scott kind of answered the question for us by uh, by pushing him off. But how, how did you break this down from a, from a driver perspective? Yeah, I, I guess there's there's a little bit to unpack from each driver's perspective. If we take Scott's first, he knows you know he's at a disadvantage in this particular scenario. The same thing had happened basically the you know the the previous pit cycle, but in that scenario, Scott was on the alternate tire, and so one of the key uh, differentiating factors between the alternate and the and the primary, particularly in race situations, is just the alternate like comes in way faster. Like you can go hard to the brakes in the first braking zone, the alternate in a way that you can't on the primaries. And so Scott knew that. Like you can tell by the way that he was driving the car, he was way slower in that exchange through turn three, 
like having to just look after the car, knowing that he knowing that they're going to have to stay single file through there. So he can not not purposefully like brake check Roma through that corner, but that he can slow him down to make sure that they're exiting turn three onto the straightaway, basically at the same speed. So Roma doesn't have like a big run on him going through the corner. How much of that was just Scott looking after his own situation and making sure that he didn't crash by pushing it too much through turn three. We saw that happen in practice guys coming out of the pits, like wrecking right out of the pits. That's not a place. I mean, drivers were talking about turn three, turn four, basically for the whole weekend that this was that those two corners in particular were just, they just felt a lot different than they have in years past for whatever, you know, there was talk about kind of repaving and, and and bumps and whatever, but whatever the reasons for it were, those two corners were driving a little differently than they have been in the past. So I think you could, pr- I, I, I didn't, I didn't see that happen. That kind of, brief accordion of Roma like getting right on the back of McLaughlin as they merge, you know, after they merge going through turn three is anything other than Scott just making sure that he's going to get through the corner. Okay. Basically, um, you know, and then you've got the drag race down into turn four McLaughlin covers off to the inside. That's, uh, that's the obvious move for him. Anybody's going to do that. And that, it was a little bit hard initially to see whether or not Scott was going to like make the corner. Had had he braked there and done that all by himself? To your point, once you saw the replays, you could tell that he ended up with rear lockup and ended up, you know, like he was going to need all of the available road there, even without Roma, you know, on track just to make the corner, breaking where he was, breaking as late as he did. Um, I will say though that. His initial brake pressure was pretty was pretty light in order to try not to do that, right? So he was definitely, I think, you know, Scott was like just right on the limit and like had he been on the alternate tire, he would have slowed down and made that corner no problem. He was, and probably with no issue, I think just the fact that he was on the primaries it just didn't quite have enough peak temp and grip in the tire to be able to do that. So uh, uh, Scott, you know, apologized afterwards, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like we don't really have to go into the fault of the matter. Like it's definitely, it was definitely McLaughlin's fault that they both got taken out, whatever. Um, but that he did do a lot. I mean, he was very close to not having that happen. Basically, I guess is my point. And that, so then if we sort of look at and he did a lot of things, he 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 employed a number of preventative measures to like like he didn't just go barreling into the corner super deep. No, you know, throwing caution to the wind. Right. Like he was trying to make the corner. He So so I, I don't think there's there's nothing beyond like him just not quite having as mu- enough grip, you know, as much grip as he needed. He broke. He he initially hit the brakes sooner than Roman did like. You know, he kind of did everything that you would do to 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 get that right, and it just didn't happen. Um, now, thinking about from Grosjean's perspective, I do sort of agree. I I was watching when I was watching the race. I was thinking this is regardless of exactly how those exchanges were going to play out. That this is Roman's race to win or lose, basically. Like it just it seemed, and, and that may not have been true. Like it it may have ended up turning out that. 
McLaughlin had like a massive last stint. And once he was out and we've seen him get out in the lead of races and just be able to control the race. So this race specifically before. <laughs> well, right. And so it may have been that even if Roma had like some pace in the bag, that that wasn't going to be enough for him to be able to get back by McLaughlin. They're both going to be on primaries at the end of the race. So it's the first time that you're even really seeing them just like apples to apples. But it felt to me that the Andretti cars were just a little better than the Penske cars were basically. And that, and that you've now also, we talked at length last year, a number of times about how it just didn't really feel like that setup or that kind of approach was quite clicking for Roma this weekend showed that they've kind of found their niche in terms of like how to get that Andretti base setup working for him. Um, It felt like he was just the most competitive car and, whether it was alternates or primaries or whatever, they they really had it figured out. So I guess I was there was a and and it's this is one of those like when you're in the moment, you know the odds are that if you're if you can't get ahead of the guy in that exchange, that you're gonna have that you might not have another chance, right? Like that that's definitely possible that you don't. They both had a lot of push to pass left, so there wasn't like a big difference there. Whether he knew that or not, kind of doesn't matter. Um, it was the reality of the situation. I guess in my mind, you're breaking super deep into that corner on the outside as the car on hot tires, really to try to force the guy on the inside to make a mistake more than more than that it's a realistic move around the outside. So you're you're hoping for one of two things to happen. One, Scott to like immediately smoke the brakes and go blowing through the corner, or two, that you br- you outbreak him by enough, like he he's no- knowing that he's on primaries, he breaks early and has to break early by enough that you do close him off to the apex, basically. And and so it's kind of like I I guess in the moment it didn't surprise me at all that both of these guys just went for the corner. Like if I was either one of those guys, I feel like I probably would have done the same thing. Like most drivers would have done what each of them did in their respective scenarios. Um, But like I said, like looking back at it now and realizing how the race was playing out and really taking a zoomed out view from it, it's still a pretty, it's like a low percentage move from Roma to do that one way or the other. Any of those, the, the two, the two good outcomes there being, or the two outcomes that he's hoping for, which is one way or the other that he ends up in front of, McLaughlin without an incident are kind of low percentage in that exchange in that scenario once they're both drag racing and like gonna be able to get to basically the same break point McLaughlin was still a little bit ahead by the time Roman went to the race so he's really having to outbreak on the outside and I think just with the benefit for us of watching the race you you just saw up through that point there was like anytime anybody was six inches offline through turn four, they ended up in the tires basically, or ended up with like a totally, you know, ended up losing two or three seconds through that sector because they were barely able to stay out of the tires. Graham Ray all sort of comes to mind from that perspective. So I think like that's not something that you really know in the cockpit. You don't see all of those other incidents happening. You don't see how they're happening. You don't really know that that's, that the that the risk of being offline there or just not you know not getting to the apex all by itself is as kind of dramatic as it is uh so 
I think there's probably a part of Roma that's like kicking himself a little bit for pushing the issue, uh, obviously because of the outcome, but even even maybe recognizing that that either wasn't necessary or or might not have worked out anyway. Basically, I think that that's that's the thing that I wonder about is even if they had both, even if McLaughlin had made the apex and not had an issue, I'm not sure Roma wasn't going to end up in the tires anyway. Basically, just from from being offline through a corner that nobody was making it through if they didn't make the apex basically throughout the race. So, uh, you know, for sure it was McLaughlin's fault. It is just kind of a racing incident. I think any any other set of drivers in the top ten of that race had they been racing for the win or or had that happened and they're racing for the last spot on the podium or for fifth or whatever like the same thing it's a very typical thing to have happen particularly into that corner but i think you can you can find a little bit of fault in terms of what was the likely outcome there regardless of mclaughlin's situation on both sides Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, Jay, before we move on to our eventual winner, Marcus Ericsson, I say eventual because it felt like it took us a while to get there after after all of the carnage that we went through in the race. Um, I wanted to sweep up a little bit about Andretti because up until the point of Marcus obviously coming through and, and winning the race, it, it felt like Andretti was definitely the, the story of the weekend and, and that started with strong practice performances. Uh, obviously a strong pre-season leading into it they had good tests at, at Thermal and Sebring and a few people have pointed out that Andretti have had good pre-seasons before and then not delivered on that in in a race season but it definitely felt like coming into well after the pole and having three cars in the top five and qualifying it, it definitely felt like there was something there and I, I heard more people talk about the fact that the, the qualifying result wasn't that diff- different to to last year as well. They had quite a few cars up there last year in terms of, of qualifying as well, but it just felt like there was something different. Uh, a mood's definitely changed in the camp there a little bit and they, they definitely feel like they're bringing a better package to to the season than they, they did last year. And I think that primarily starts with, with Roman and what he and Olivier Boisson have been able to find because you, you, you speak to Roman about last year at St. Pete and and how Andretti were basically on the pacing in qualifying there. And he, he immediately says, yeah, but I wasn't comfortable in the car. And when you're not happy with the car's performance, you can't, you know, replicate that on a consistent basis. And that's what we saw through, you know, last season that he wasn't able to consistently deliver some of the strong performances that we saw at times because he just wasn't comfortable with the car. And that's what the the U-turn is in the off-season, especially for him, is that, you know, he, he hates understeer basically. And they've managed to get around that a little bit coming into this weekend and with all the work that they've done in the preseason and I guess the 
the additional point to that is that it's not upset Colton Herter or, or Kyle Kirkwood either. So when you've got a driver who, you know, is basically averse to understeer, but you've got two other drivers who maybe uh, are a little bit kind of opposite in that sense. If you start to develop towards one driver, then you you always run the risk of getting away from the other two. But it's it's definitely seems like Colton and, and Kyle have been a bit willing to try Roman setups in the preseason and, and haven't totally hated them and have adapted bits that have that have happened there. But I think it's a really interesting story because if you kind of look at the progress, obviously Olivier came in halfway through the off season last year with with Roman in into the into the team and. I guess it's really difficult to come in from a small team like Dale Coyne. Maybe not a small team. I know Dale Coyne doesn't like it being referred to as a small team, but a team with less resources than a team like Andretti. It's hard for you to come in as Olivier, whack your Dale Coyne setup on Andretti, find out that it doesn't work. And then from that point, where do you go with that? You can't turn around and say, well, all the work that Andretti's done over the last 10 years is relevant and we're going to go back on everything that you've learned and everything that you've done. Um, even though Colton's crushing people, we're going to go back totally on everything that you've learned and everything that you've done because Roman wants the car a certain way. You know, you don't have that. You can't do that at a team like, like Andretti when you come in. So it's definitely been a process that's taken some time for Olivier and Roman to adapt into that team and and to find their way. And I think that's why last season was so kind of rollercoastery and kind of difficult to put your finger on because it was a lot of trial and error and trying to, to kind of move the car more towards Roman in a in a subtle way that didn't impact the rest of the team or undo any of the hard work that, that Andretti's, you know, found success with in the past. So quite an interesting story there. And it was, it was interesting to see uh, Michael Andretti in the press conference after the qualifying, just being so buoyant for him. Um, you know, he's, he, he really feels like his team's coming into this season with, with something strong. And I guess the only downside to the whole weekend was, uh, Colton and, and Kyle lunching their tires in the, the first session there. So I'm sure they'll be doing a lot of, a lot of hard work there. That does raise the question, does Roman's kind of style suit the the tyre a little bit better? And and that's one of the reasons why Roman was able to keep the tyres alive or was it purely down to the fact that Roman was driving that whole first stint in clean air and, you know, had the extra downforce and, and was able to take care of the tyres a little bit better. So um, I'm sure Andretti will be studying that hard to work out what's gone on there. But uh, yeah, the general theme there is they feel a lot more comfortable coming into this season and not just more comfortable, but more confident of being able to replicate good form because they're in a position where they feel like they can capitalize on their equipment. Yeah, I guess I think the thing, it definitely does seem to, yeah, I agree. We, we've talked about the fact, I think we talked on the preseason pod about the fact that and coming here, if Andretti was good here, that that's not necessarily a signal for where they're going to be at for the rest of the season because they've been good here in the past. But just how compact all four of their cars were relative to where they've been in the past, you know, particularly their top three cars, their three cars that you're expecting to be fast. But even the fact, you know, Devlin was just on the outside of making the top 12. That's a significant gain for where he's at in the big scheme of things here. So the fact that you had the other three cars, they were all close together in every practice session through qualifying, just the consistency of all of the cars over the entire weekend and through preseason testing, that is different than we've seen in the past few years. And so I think the only caveat to that at St. Pete is that all the teams that were struggling with rear grip 
were really bad at St. Pete. And we know just from watching from watching Colton over the years, we know that one of the strengths of the Andretti, particularly the Andretti street course setup, but their road and street course course program is rear grip that they they've biased that setup towards having plenty of stability for Colton to be able to do his thing, which is break straight, break deep, get off the brake, have the car turn, be able to turn in aggressively at corner entry. You know, these are all things that, you know, you're not being super delicate with the car through that transition. And so in order to not be super delicate with the car there, you know, it's, it's sort of a point shoot sort of way of driving style, which as we've seen, it makes sense that that works well at places like this. Cause it's just a bunch of 90 degree corners. Basically you need to just get the car rolling through the center. If you can, if you can sort of maximize the straight line sections, you know, the, the breaking point, breaking deep into the corner and then excel picking, being able to not have this long coast phase, pick up throttle, accelerate hard off the corner, uh, with traction, with grip on both ends of the corner from that perspective that, you know, just the, the sort of math of that makes sense that that's going to be fast around a lot of these types of places. Colton's been extraordinarily good at taking advantage of what that gives him. So I think to your point, they have found, you know, one of the things just as a little, whatever, a tidbit from switched going to different teams and seeing what different teams do and even having engineers move from team to team, you know, I've been around these types of situations plenty over the course of my career that you might have setups that you've developed at a different squad, obviously from Dale Coyne to Andretti. There's not that many aspects of the fundamental car that really change. They're both Hondas. So you're not getting used to something completely different from that perspective in terms of power delivery or the options that you have available to you there. Uh, You'd sort of sit there and think, well, if they've got something that works, why wouldn't that just work at, at Andretti? Like what is there? There's not really anything different. The one thing that is, is fundamentally different team to team is the damper programs that they use. And so if you're, I don't know the details of what Dale Coyne runs and what uh, Andretti runs, but it's very possible that they're just running a different, different brand of damper, a different style of damper that you can't totally replicate what you've been doing or the traces look the same, but the feeling of the actual car on that different set of dampers is different. This is kind of the, the black magic that goes on behind the scenes, in the IndyCar series um, that takes a lot of time to get sorted out, get used to. Um, Olivier has plenty of experience in the damper tuning department, but if you just can't get it, it takes time to get to exactly what you're looking for. And so I think that's where just the time that they've had within this organization, within the team to I, I imagine that they've had to kind of at some point just start over for themselves. Like, all right, this is this is just what we have to work with here. So rather than trying to replicate what we think should work based on what we've done before, you almost have to restart that learning process together with somebody else's damper program to figure out how to maximize uh, what you can extract out of it. I, I'm I would guess that that's part of the process that. Roman Olivier has have gone through second half of last year through this offseason to to get to where they need to be. I do personally think that just being in clean air had a lot to do with tire wear on the whenever guys were on the alternates. Um, Because even Pato Award, who did not have the pace of 
Rama or Colton at the beginning of that first stint. He was essentially because they gapped him so dramatically in the first 10 laps of that stint, he was essentially in clean air and was basically and was just able to kind of like tick the lap time off in a way that Colton obviously couldn't. The only thing I would say from a driving perspective sometimes is that when you do have a car that has has a strong has strong rear grip, has good traction off the corner, all of those things, um, it can kind of it can enable you to drive the car harder early in the stint because you've you've just got that feeling of stability and security when you're you know even even putting power down off the corner you're driving through a little bit of understeer but you can control how much understeer you've got by just going to throttle harder and overcoming that getting some slip angle across the rear of the car and you know getting the car to kind of swap ends and steer itself off the corner that does put a lot of for if you think about over the course of a stint that does put a lot of wear um you know through the rear tires in a way that a car that has a little bit more is a little bit freer through the center of the corner you might not be able to be as aggressive braking and turning on the entry or accelerating and turning off the exit but it will just kind of naturally wear a little bit more consistently over the course of the event. So I guess for, for both of those reasons, the fact that the fact that we kind of think that their cars drive a certain way and the fact that Colton in particular and Kyle for that matter, were both in like heavy traffic um, driving hard at the beginning of those stints. I think the, the sort of combo platter of those things probably, uh, you know, had a, had a pretty significant effect on it, but Overall, yeah, I mean, you had to be impressed. Obviously, the weekend, it, it was like the wheels were totally coming off. I felt bad every every time they showed Michael on the screen. It was like, if this was a different situation, this this would just be becoming a meme for forever. Like the the face of Michael Andrew, the disappointment in Michael Andrew, the, the disbelief in Michael Andretti's face every time one of his cars ends up getting into an accident that's not really, not really their fault was almost unfortunately comical by the time the race was over but but you got to think that these guys came out of this weekend you know feeling like they you know kind of got gypped in terms of you know not getting a result but uh at the same time i think their buoyancy i would expect that they'll continue to show us that they've got a better package this year than they did last year uh, over the upcoming races So we could switch it over. Marcus, uh, we'll talk about Marcus, finally, our winner. I got to say, just from my perspective, Ganassi was, uh, while while Andretti was super uh, impressive, just in terms of their outright pace, they clearly had kind of like a handle on the field. Ganassi was low-key, very impressive to me, just over the course of the weekend. That they, they were not quite as compactly tight up at the top of the field with all of their cars, but they were consistently very fast throughout the event. They had a couple of cars in Marcus, Marcus, Alex, Scott all seemed like depending on how the race kind of played out that they, that any of them could have been battling for the first two speed you know, for the win or for certainly for a podium, even if uh, Roma and Scott kind of hadn't had their incident. It's worth mentioning that, that Dixon sort of got screwed on that last uh, pit cycle with yellow coming out while he's in the pits. Usually that works to your advantage, but in St. Pete, because of where the timing lines are, he sh- should have been at least like third 
and ended up fifth or sixth or whatever in that final restart because the you know you you imagine you're you're basically drag racing the cars that are on track out of the pit lane the distance between pit lane exit to turn two is very short the distance from the cars where the timing line is the timing lines in the braking zone of turn one so they've got to still get all the way through turn break slow down get all the way through turn one then get to turn two um scott ended up kind of on the wrong end of that exchange there so that took him sort of you know we we could very i guess i say that just to say we could very easily be talking about scott dixon winning the race, but Ganassi just had a, a, like they did for a lot of last year. It's interesting. It's been really interesting to me. This is not something that I've paid a lot of attention to over the course of my time in IndyCar really, but just man, the, the composure that they managed to have as, as individual entries, but just as a group over the course of these weekends is it's, it's impressive to me that like that stands out to me just watching the races from afar, which is not something that I'm really used to even noticing. So uh, I'll let you kind of jump in on that, but we'll talk about Marcus for a second. First, this is third street course win. Um, from my perspective, very much the same scenario. Like they just, they were there. He was, he was super quick all weekend. So this is definitely not a scenario where you can sit there and say, Oh, well, he like lucked into somehow ending up at the front. Like he was just as quick as any of the Ganassi cars were, which is could argue, you could argue that that's maybe been one of his weaker points in, in years past. Um, he's had some words for those who have had any doubts about his achievements in the last few years. Um, who are these doubters <laughs> and what do you what do you make of his performance over the weekend jack well he couldn't really name any of these doubters that he referred to in his uh post-race um i guess tv interview but yeah there always seems to be this kind of invisible fight for justice with marcus erickson doesn't know like he he constantly feels like he has to defend himself and um or, or maybe maybe not necessarily he feels like he has to defend himself, but he, he feels like he isn't being given the the dues that he deserves. And we've seen that on multiple occasions, included on this podcast before, where we didn't include him in the in the top 10 drivers mid-season in, in 2021. And, you know, you get this feeling from him that he, he always feels like he's up against it and that he's always, you know, not getting the, the credit he deserves, which, you know, is very possible as part of his even if it's not intentional, part of his kind of mental psyche that he feels like he needs to be fighting against things all the time for him to be able to access that, you know, elite level of performance. I'm I'm not sure we can definitely ask him about that when we get him on the pod very, very soon. But yeah, I think it was really interesting that you mentioned qualifying because we've had a new rule where the drivers had an extra set of soft tyres for, for qualifying this time around. And Marcus was caught out a little bit earlier in qualifying so that he didn't have a fresh set of uh, softs in the fast six when everybody else or the people who was fighting for pole did so he was kind of hamstrung in in fourth place and was never going to be a factor for for pole there uh, it would have been really nice to see him get a street course pole because I think he's been working really hard for two or three years now on his qualifying performance especially on on street circuits and and road courses so I think that's been a focus of the whole team and I think there's an acknowledgement that they've definitely made a step forward. They're another team that didn't qualify badly at St. Pete last year either. So right. you're trying to make this judgment of how big a step has there actually been here. Is this a little bit of a hangover of just knowing you've got a good car at this circuit and that 
you know, things went well for you last year and you've not changed a whole a whole bunch of stuff, which, the, you know, arguably the top teams like Ganassi and, and Penske shouldn't be, you know, ripping up everything and starting again. You know, they should be, there should be an element of evolution there to to what they're bringing to the track. So it, it's kind of hard to read too much into it at St. Pete in the same way that we were talking about with Andretti earlier for Ganassi, but it definitely felt like there was a step up qualifying wise. You know, Alex Plow and Scott Dixon both missed out by like 0.00 something seconds to, to make it into the fast six. Um, and all around, just we're just not used to Ganassi bringing that many cars in qualifying to to be that close to the to the top six on a regular basis. So it's going to be really interesting to follow that theme through the year. I know Marcus and, and Brad Goldberg's engineer really feel like they, they kind of made a step forward and were kind of left a little bit like unfulfilled not having that extra set of tyres and qualifying just to see if they could have taken that pole and if the if all that hard work in, in the off-season had, had kind of paid off. But I think the, I guess the important part of all of that is that you were talking about you know, people not being able to say that Marcus had looked into this, but the, you know, the reason why he was in position to, to, to be where he was, was because he qualified well. And that's something that they've improved on and worked on. So you have to give them the dues for, for that element of this. You also have to go back and remember how good Marcus was at St. Pete last year when he had the unsafe release penalty and went to the back of the field. And when everybody else was struggling to overtake, he went from the back to, to ninth in what was like one of the probably underrated drives of the season. Um, and people were kind of left wondering what would have been there if he hadn't have had that pit lane penalty. Interestingly enough, as a sidebar, very, very similar to what happened with Dixon and Newgarden, if anyone was watching in the in the first pit stops where Dixon came in just as, uh, sorry, Newgarden came in just as Dixon was being released. And to me, that looked very similar to what Ericsson was penalised for last year and, and Dixon didn't get the penalty. And maybe race control have some... Um, some different opinion on that as to why it was different to, to last year. But I just thought that was interesting that two Ganassi cars had been in a similar situation there and one of them had been penalised and one of them hadn't. And I'm not saying there's any reason why that is in terms of, you know, any bias or anything, but it was just, it's just interesting when you get similar things with race control and you're looking for the reasons why they're making these calls and stuff like that. So that was a, that was quite interesting that that happened. I think you mentioned Dixon, obviously we can't go any further without, you know, mentioning his weekend and, and how strong it was and, and, you know, it literally comes down to 0.003 seconds that he was off making that fast six and, and what that might have meant. Maybe he'd have been the one in the position to to be where Marcus was. And as you rightly pointed out, if the if the cautions had fallen a little bit differently, then his strategy of starting on the on the harder tire, you know, everything would have worked out perfectly in terms of where the cautions fell in the race up until that point where that one came out and and ruined it for him. And I saw a a stat that Trackside Online had shared, Steve Whitich's website, definitely go and check that out on social media if you're not followed it. But the the stat there was like, it was like 52.4%, I think, top fives Scott Dixon scored in his career. So like over half the races he's been in an IndyCar, he's been in the top five, which is, if that is real, which I've not actually verified yet, but I know Steve is very uh, careful with his stats and stuff. That is a, a ridiculous stat, isn't it? And just, um, you know, he was just another one you can add to the list of people who could have won this race along with Pato Awardu had that plenum fire just coming off the the last corner, which allowed Marcus to to sneak ahead there. But as Marcus, again, with his kind of defensive comments in, in the post-race, pointed to the fact that Pato had only lost about half a second with that happening. And if Marcus hadn't have basically ran Pato down in that last stint, because the, the gap after the caution was like 2.2 seconds that Pato pulled out immediately while 
it looked like Marcus was going to get overtaken by Scott Dixon at, at one point um, after that caution. Uh, it looked like Marcus was going to go backwards, not forwards, and then suddenly he started eating to, eating into this gap when when his tyres came alive and he was able to to put that pressure on Pato. So another interesting element of the of the victory, you know, some people will, will watch the highlights of that and say, you know, Pato, you know, he, that was his race to lose and he'd lost it through something that wasn't his fault. But if Marcus wasn't there putting the pressure on him, you know, there's no guarantee that that it would have played out like that. So it was interesting. I, I, I'm still. I'm still really interested by Marcus's kind of um, defensive attitude and that he feels like he has to justify himself all the time. He's an Indy 500 winner and he's he's won four IndyCar races. I mean, sure, it'd be nice to see him win a road course race, which is kind of, it's weird. That's the last thing you're kind of waiting for from him based on his career and yeah. you know, where he's been in the past. But he, he has always loved street circuits in, in all of the championships he's competed in. He's a massive fan of Macau and, and places like that. So... Um, it's not a surprise to me at all that he's loving the street circuits and that's where he's he's finding a lot of success. But I think really the only thing you can accuse him of really now is winning on a road course and winning a championship. And that's like the only things that are left that you can really beat him with at this point. Like he's he's won as many races as almost anyone over the past two seasons and has, has been right up there. So yeah, uh, Marcus Ericsson and Scott Dixon, both really interesting weekends. Dixon a little bit under the radar, but probably much better than it looked um, especially when you're dealing with the gaps as tight as they are in in the fast six and uh, yeah Marcus staying cool under pressure not letting Pato get away ran him down and when it came to it when the when the crucial moment was there Marcus was there to capitalise so yeah really interesting race from those two yeah, I think I'll just I'll just jump in really quick on a couple of things that, you know, you're talking through those different situations reminded me of. One is I think just for for us to be paying attention to and for listen, you know, IndyCar fans, our listeners to be paying attention to is I do think that all this for Joseph Newgarden, he you know, we won't talk about talk much about his weekend because it kind of just never really got on track, but the he and Scott Dixon both I think are in at least more settled engineering situations this year than they were last year. I, I guess my my feeling is that behind the scenes on we we talked about Scott uh, somewhat frequently that because he was pretty vocal about it just his situation with the nine crew and you know you you just whatever was going on behind the scenes you saw some kind of engineering changes going on over the course of the seasons. There were times where Simmons was engineering the car, it, it just like. There was obviously some tumultuous, you know, scenario. There's something going on behind the scenes there that, uh, you know, wasn't clean and tidy throughout the season, at least in terms of what was going on and and that communication, interaction, and and trust that is so important to be able to go out and execute at a high level every weekend. Um, this is not certainly not to say that I think exactly the same thing was going on behind the scenes with the two crew. For Joseph, but there there has been an engineering change, and just I know from talking to Joseph that he's you know happy with you know excited about the season and and happy kind of with their feels a little bit more settled in terms of what their deal is has known that has known what he's walking into this year um, it, further in advance than he did in, in the previous year. So I think those are just some things to look at. I was impressed with the nine car just throughout this weekend. You know, more often than not through practice. They were the fastest Ganassi car, which is kind of not what we've seen from Scott over the last couple of years, particularly on street circuits, I feel like. Like 
they've been through practice, especially they've just been, the nine car has been all over the place. So if those guys find, if those guys have found some consistency and can come to the weekends kind of error free and feeling good, Scott feeling good about the situation that he's in, uh, when you compare how little they needed to be better basically last season to be able to win a championship, to go on big runs, to win a bunch of races, um, you know, that's, I think, just something that's something I'll be paying attention to over the course of this year. Does how do how do we feel about the way that it seems like things are going on behind the scenes at a few of these championship contending programs or championship contending entries? Um, but to sort of talk about that, we've talked at length about Aero McLaren just as a broader organization outside of the independent entries on the team. You know, they they came out swinging. All three of those cars were fast throughout practice. It sort of took Alex a few sessions to get in the swing of things, but he was right there with Felix and Pato for the most part. And, you know, we're talking a tenth of a second separating eight cars or something in, in qualifying. So, you know, maybe wasn't exactly on the pace, but when you really break it down, absolutely in the same window of performance, had himself a really strong race throughout the the course of the event. Um, you know, do you feel like we've talked about Andretti, we've talked about Ganassi, do you feel like this is an indication that these guys have hit the ground running and can continue to do this through the year? Well, Pato's a good benchmark, isn't it? Because he's the one who's usually wringing the neck out of the thing, um, putting it in places it shouldn't be in, in qualifying and, and things like that. And he just immediately feels like this year's car is just, that e- that bit easier to access. I-, I guess it's a similar situation to what we were talking about with Roman, except it's not really like a a setup direction that Pato's looking for. It's just being able to. It's just it's just the car being more accessible to to all of the drivers, not just him, um, and and being able to extract the pace on a more consistent basis. And I think we saw with what you've just described there in qualifying that was a, a good sign of that. I think the the context of it all is they've added you know well over 40 people to this team in the off season thermal was a little bit of a mess in terms of getting all these people in adapted learning the processes of the team even simple things like just communication and all that kind of good stuff when you're adding 40 odd people is is never going to be easy and i think there was definitely a a feeling coming away from thermal that it was, you know, there was going to be potential for a bit of a rocky start to the year while people adapted and, and everything kind of settled down. But the, the Sebring test that followed was much more positive for them. You know, it seemed like the kind of growing pains they'd gone through at thermal had really kind of played out and that they'd just hit the ground running at at the Sebring test and, and really, you know, felt comfortable there. Obviously Sebring, it's not, it's not exactly like St. Pete, but it's, it's not the worst place to go and test in comparison to St. Pete with the bumps and, and stuff like that. And uh, as additional context, St. Pete's been somewhere that Aaron McLaren's really struggled over the past few years to to find that accessible performance that the that they've needed. So it's it's a re- it's a really interesting weekend for sure. Um, I, I think speaking to the drivers before the weekend, despite that Sebring test, I think there was still an acceptance that there was a possibility that they were going to turn up here and be off the pace or struggle to to better what they managed last year. Um, and, and obviously they have done in, in spades. I think even Alexander Rossi, there were occasions where I feel like the the reason why he wasn't able to replicate Pato and, and Felix wasn't necessarily just because he was the new guy in the team. You know, there was 
stuff that happens in a race team over a course of a weekend where things just don't quite go your way or there's you know someone misses a little bit on the setup or or you you don't judge a change with the conditions and you you know the car gets ahead of you a little bit and 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 kind of gets away from you so uh, even in Alexander Rossi's case I didn't think he was a million miles away he was definitely a little bit further off than than Felix and Pato coming into the season which you'd expect but he wasn't he wasn't as far away as I was probably expecting him to be given how tricky it could have been at St. Pete for the team based on on the past few seasons so yeah I think a a good positive start to the year the one thing they do need to do is cut out the you know the reliability issues and you know I think from what I've seen and 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 heard and spoke to in the paddock it does seem to be a bit of a a Chevy issue as opposed to an Aaron McLaren issue but it's not one that comes up particularly often it's just unfortunate that in this case, it's happened in a you know a race winning moment. Whereas I think the last time it happened to Pato was um, the Mid Ohio weekend. Um, if it wasn't last year, it was the year before. Where it was in like a really inconsequential point in like a practice or a or a warm up. So you know this one's just unfortunate because it's happened in a, a high profile scenario. But you know, speaking just generally, we know like if you're going to beat a Penske, Ganassi, and an Andretti over the course of a season, you can't make you know, consistent reliability, you know, mistakes. If, if, if it's on the team side, if it's on Chevy's side, it doesn't really matter. You've got to be, you've got to be giving your drivers the be- absolute best opportunity to finish every single race. You know, that's how Will Powell won the championship last year by having the best worst finish of anyone and, and only winning one race because he was so consistent. So I think that's what they'll be working on now heading into, into Texas, which is a race where, you know, we definitely expect them to be front running with what we've seen from them, that, from, from them there before. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how this kind of plays out. And I think Texas, they'll be really happy to be going into Texas as a second race off the back of a good St. Pete because they're going to start to hit some momentum. I think they've had a good St. Pete where it could have been a lot worse. They're going to go into Texas where theoretically they should be really on the pace. Yeah. And then by the time we get to by the time we get to Long Beach, that's going to have been you know two good banker races that they've all had to get in the groove, learn each other's communication get settled into the team, tweak the car a little bit so that the drivers are a little bit happier than where, you know, you might start in testing and just, you know, head into like the third race of the season with a, an all-round stronger package. So if you're a neutral IndyCar fan, I think looking at what we've seen this weekend, Penske is the only really kind of disappointing proposition that we've seen in terms of Andretti, Aaron McLaren and Ganassi have all made big steps forward but at the same time Penske were quite away ahead last year so <laughs> I don't think it's time to rule them out of fighting for this championship or or anything like that or, or anywhere near and I think if this weekend had gone slightly differently for for those guys they could have won the race and they could have had uh, you know three of their cars in the top 10 quite comfortably so it's uh, as much circumstances as anything to do with the the pace or the execution of the weekend for, for Penske. While I've mentioned Penske, we should probably round off Will Power, who obviously had to go to the back of the grid after, I mean, how do you want to word this? Pushing Colton Herter off, I'd say. I mean, this is this this is one that everyone will have their own opinion on, but I think the for me, the, the telling on board of this incident at turn eight was Colton's clearly ahead, both at the point of the first contact and the point of the second contact. And therefore, I think the penalty for Will is is fair. Similar situation to Roma, maybe where Colton's kind of hung out on the outside and he might have struggled to make the corner. But I think the difference there was 
that Will had checked up for, for Marcus in front. So unless Colton basically stops behind Will Power on the track, the only option for him is to go around the outside there. So I feel like Will needed to give him a bit more slack there and, and give him a bit more room. So that's where I'm at on that incident. But that covers off Will Power and a very 2022 Will Power drive, I think. You know, he's uh, kind of been under the radar a little bit. He went to the back of the grid for a penalty and still managed to finish the race seventh, which will be important points, you know, come the end of the year for him. Yeah, I think, just, I mean, from my perspective, yeah, I basically thought the same thing in terms of the incident. There's not really a lot of places for Colton to go. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, Will Will definitely did end up, That's a it's a hard corner because you're, uh, once one from the center of the entry down to the apex, it's sort of, you're like going over this crown in the road that, does you know you saw a lot of guys over the course of practice and and even in qualifying uh we'll get to the the Hunkos cars in a second but Augustine Canapino like was uh got some good airtime for basically just having like this big rear lockup you know backing it in slide into turn 8 i think in qualifying um and so it's a it's a place just because of the nature of the shape of the road basically at entry if you're in a place that you're not normally in the car just does things that you don't always anticipate in exactly the same way. Colton ended up, you know, it's another corner like turn four that you're not going to kind of get anything out of being on the outside there. You're certainly not going to make an outside pass on somebody unless you're way ahead of them at corner entry, but then you're, it's just, it, it narrows up, it gets tight uh, through the apex to the exit with the, with the tires being there. Um, so just unfortunate basically for Colton that Will had a, had himself a, a bit of a moment there because I think they probably were trying, you know, I think Colton was probably thinking we're just going to blend back together here. And so, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, that's that was just a bummer for him, a bummer for Will in the context, the greater context of, you know, how his race ended up being affected by that too. But um, I want to jump back to the Hunkos guys. Uh, maybe just walk us through their weekend because they they flew a little under the radar, um, weren't super special through through practice and qualifying. But Callum ended up fifth, Augustine Canapino twelfth. I was super impressed with with both, particularly Augustine over the course of the weekend. Like to just not be to be to be him coming in with this team, which is not one of the high profile teams. So you're you're not in Scott McLaughlin's situation. To come in and not and just not be DFL for the whole weekend is like a huge accomplishment. And then he he did everything he said he wanted to do. He showed up, he got through the race, he you know ran every lap, got to the end, stayed out of trouble. Um, I'm I'm excited to to watch Augustine for the rest of the year now. Yeah, he's definitely the the kind of guy to watch in the field for me, really, in terms of how quickly he can progress from this. Because his fastest race lap was two tenths off his teammate Callum Eilat, which. When you consider how highly rated Callum is in the paddock, you know that tells you how how well Agustin has started. And it's not just you know uh, lap times in the race aren't always a really good indication because you could be fuel saving. You know you might have a lot of traffic. You might not set your best time when the conditions are perfect and and somebody else does. So it's not always perfectly representative. But you know he he's been in a sort of eight to six tenth window off Callum for most of the weekend and. When you consider the guys just coming from a Scott McLaughlin style, like tin top to, to single seaters for the first time situation in a in a team nowhere near as good as Penske, it's uh you know a really interesting proposition to 
to kind of work out where he's at. So, yeah, it's um, it was great talking to him at the weekend. His English is still coming on. He's not doing as many lessons as he as he was um, before. He was doing three lessons a week uh, for three months, and that's how he he learned his English. Really cool, by the way, to hear him or or hear him say that it's important for him to speak English on the radio and to not just revert to Spanish because he's got Ricardo Huncos on on his time and stand obviously doing his his strategy and, and stuff like that but um, he, he doesn't want to get into a situation where he's just asking Ricardo everything in, in Spanish he wants to develop his English and be able to feedback with the engineers properly and in, in English and and all that kind of stuff so yeah he seems like he's adapted really well big smile on his face all weekend uh, really strong performance from him and I was really impressed with Callum as well um, you know he he felt like at times they were maybe taking one step forward and taking two steps back in, in practice and in the lead up to qualifying in the race and, and obviously he qualified outside of the top 20. So that tells you how good his race was. I think they'd, you know, they'd stumbled across something that was much better in the race than they'd had at any other point in the weekend. But also if you watch how Callum drove in the race, it you know, it's, it's never going to be Callum's, you know, his proudest race in terms of how quick he was. But, he stayed out of trouble when a lot of veteran drivers messed up and, and had big, big incidents. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a really good sign of his maturity, I think, and how he's developing in IndyCar, learning how to be good in the series, how to, how to get results and generally how to go from outside of the top 20 into the top five in, in IndyCar. It can be done if you're, if you're sensible and, and chip away at it, have good strategy and make good decisions and, and don't make make big errors in your driving. So yeah, good, really good weekend for Huncos. I think you know the their off season's been up and down. They've still got a lot of work to do, but St. Pete was definitely their worst weekend last year. So to come here and have a top five is yeah really encouraging for what they might be able to do later in the year. And and even if they do struggle at places where they were where they were good last year, just bagging the points from St. Pete is is going to be a, a big deal for them. So so that's really cool. All right, so that's all for this week's The Race IndyCar podcast, wrapping up the St. Petersburg weekend. Before we do that, I should probably just quickly talk about the airborne incidents that we had because we didn't mention them specifically. We talked about a lot of the drivers that were involved in them, but uh, it was good to see Benjamin Pedersen and Devlin Francesco walking away from the lap one crash. If you've not seen that, you can go on social media and have a look at it. It's uh, a pretty wild crash. And Jay Fry's actually shared a really cool video of of Pedersen's car with uh, a big mark on the aero screen where the that device has obviously done its job and and helped uh, helped Benjamin get out of that one. So yeah, that was a wild crash where Devlin's car was like shot up into the air and like spun around in a a really weird way. And it was really good to see him, um, everyone involved in that crash. I think it was six drivers involved altogether get away from from that one. Also, the the other airborne shunt as well was Kyle Kirkwood. Uh, he kind of had a very interesting race where um, he fell back like Colton did in the early stages where he was struggling to keep the tyres alive. Uh, then he punted Connor Daly at turn eight and then he got caught up in the Renus VK Jack Harvey crash at turn four and was catapulted over the back of um, Jack Harvey's car and over Renus VK's car in a monster truck jump kind of situation, which is another one you can go and check out on social media. I'm not one to point people towards crashes normally to watch, but I think seeing how strong these indie cars are really gives you a lot of faith in you know putting these cars out there at, at the speeds that they go and to see uh, the drivers walk away from some of these crashes is you know really a testament to 
the work that IndyCar has done with all of its suppliers and whether that's the Aeroscreen or Dallara or any of the other people it works with. So that was really cool to see and uh, yeah, glad to see that there was only a few bumps and bruises from the drivers who were involved in those shunts. So we've got a little bit of a gap now towards Texas, the oval race, which is coming up. So we'll definitely add some drivers who had interesting weekends at St. Pete join us on the podcast in the gap before then. But for now, that's all for this week's The Race IndyCar podcast. The Athletic.